and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So I, um, I am talking to you from a fairly undisclosed location in the uh, Adirondacks. We're uh, today's the last day of our um, dispatch retreat. It's been really great. Weather has been shockingly awesome. I was very worried that it was going to be um, rainy, particularly since the first. 24 hours we were up here it was it rained non-stop my wife and i went to lake placid the day before and uh um stayed in a hotel and it was it was it was very reminiscent of like seattle during the rainy rainy season just constant gray drizzle and all that kind of thing um oh before i get uh into whatever the hell i'm going to be talking about um Question for anybody who knows anything about Lake Placid out there. Um, Lake Placid's kind of, it's cute. I like it. I don't, I've been there. I've driven through it a few times because the place where we're having this retreat is a place I've been to before. Um, it's actually where at, at AI we've been hunting interns for sport for years. And so um, I have some experience up here. But um, so I, I looked it up and like the population of Lake Placid is only like th three, the village of Lake Placid, like 3000 people. And I was like, okay, well, it's kind of like a tourist town, you know, uh, ski town kind of thing, summer population, winter population changes, all that. But then I looked at the surrounding county, which I think is Essex County, and it's only like 30,000 people. And that's all fine. And I'm sure no one thinks any of this is particularly strange except for the fact that Lake Placid High School looks like the Ministry of Defense in a small East European country. I mean, it's just this giant building. And I don't know how you generate enough school-age kids to justify a building that ginormous in the middle of downtown. So if somebody has an explanation for me, I'd, I'd be curious to know. This is the life I live, as I just, I, I drive around the country wondering why things are the way they are um speaking of why things are the way they are um i haven't followed too much of the news at a granular level we really struggled yesterday with the dispatch podcast to come up with topics that we thought we could speak journalistically responsibly about um and if you look if you listen closely to the group podcast um you'll notice that Steve, who's the biggest stickler about doing his homework before he opens his mouth, um, is uncharacteristically not loquacious uh, on the podcast, and he keeps trying to like respond to questions, but with questions, so he doesn't have to like say what he actually thinks. Um, it was a refreshing change, and I think we should surprise Steve with more podcasts along those lines. Um, we're going to do a, I, this is all just basically me trying to get my brain started. It's very early in the morning. This is also a very awkward way to do this podcast because I have a dom sitting near me like a strange homeless dude in uh, a public library sitting way too close to me um, while I record this because we're all doing, we have all this podcast equipment here live. And normally I just sit like the crazy homeless dude at the public library talking to myself 
at my desk at home and uh, um, having an actual human being watch me do this very awkward, embarrassing thing of talking for uh, hopefully not quite a full hour um, by myself is uh, it's it's it makes it the whole thing a little more other directed than it normally would be. Um, but we're going to do we we planned on doing it here. Maybe we'll do it today. I don't think so. I think Adam might cry if we did. But um, Steve and I are due for our sort of annual, semi-annual um, have drinks and talk about what's going on with the dispatch. And a lot is going on with the dispatch. It was really, really cool um, at this retreat. Um, you know, we struggled to get a table big enough, and it's a big-ass table, um, actually like three big-ass tables connected, um, to get all of the staffers and and a couple other people associated with the dispatch. You know, we had a member of the board here. We had a couple of our advisors. Um, but we have like, I don't know. I don't know what the final number is. It's like 27 people. And um, and that doesn't even include people like Scott Lensicum who couldn't come and Chris Starwalt who couldn't come. And, uh, you know, we, we, we just lost Caleb a week ago. So... Uh, you know, we're we're just a kind of like a big organization, and we're full of these really strange and exotic young people. Um, some of whom, you know, Adam is one. Uh, Harvest Prude is another. Um, Price Saint Clair is another. We kind of have our own version of like weird NPR named staffers, um, exotically named staffers. Um, but they're also just a little more exotic in other ways as well. I mean, I, I, I have to talk to Alec Dent about wearing ascots. It makes me feel unsafe. Um, and we have some pretty cool announcements that by the time you listen to this, you may have heard about. But if not, um, uh, you'll hear about it on um, Monday or Tuesday. Um, oh, and I love that, you know, like, um, speaking of cool announcements, you know, Alapundit isn't even here yet. So I still have not met him. Um, but, uh, I should call him Nick cause we're allowed to do that now. Um, anyway, uh, it's been really sort of edifying and fun and lots of people brought babies, uh, their own babies, just to be clear, we don't believe in bringing other people's babies. Um, and it's been, um, um, it just really kind of feels like we're, we're building something real and we walk through some of the numbers and the projections in various meetings and it feels like we could be something even bigger and realer um, in the months and years ahead and that would be pretty awesome. So we'll do more of a catch up on all that. I'm just again explaining why I'm talking to you from this strange basement location that's not my home. Um, but one of the things I did follow at least, you know, um, tangentially was all of this NatCon stuff. Um, oh, before we get to that, we might as well do, do the rank, rank punditry stuff, um, since it's, it's somewhat related. Um, you know, if I were trying to train up a young pundit about just sort of rules of thumb, and fortunately I kind of am since the dispatch is sort of in that space. Um, you know, one of the things I would always tell people is, um, Whenever there's like a lot of chatter about this, this is a movement whose time has come, or this is the new change, 
of you know this is the, this is the the new way things are going to be in a party or in politics uh just bring an enormous bag of grains of salt with you because there's an ins there's a sort of confirmation bias incentive structure problem that leads to that kind of chatter um first of all media reporters in particular but sort of political reporters in general love to talk about um new trends you know um i like the guys at axios and axios is a great publication with some really talented people but um that's sort of the format that um well, that's that's sort of the reporting that is sort of almost determined by the nature by the formula for how they report things is they they want to tell high-end readers high dollar readers you know this is the new trend to be watching for right this is the this is the next big thing and political reporters in general like to talk about the next big thing and they extrapolate from what is in the current moment maybe something important but uh and or maybe just something sort of sui generis and and not not necessarily important but they do these like straight line projections that say this is the way things are going to be going forward um and if you're always looking for new trends and your whole shtick is to find new trends um sometimes you're going to find things that aren't new trends and you're going to call them new trends and so like i remember i don't know I, I, again i don't have anything in front of me to google all this stuff but like i i distinctly remember it was like a few months ago where everyone was talking about how like peter Thiel was the new power broker in the gop and he was the new center of gravity in the gop and these new national conservative candidates were um the tip of the spear of this new changing nature of the republican party um and you know flash forward to this week and teal has um closed his checkbook leaving blake masters the guy he set up to twist in the wind um uh you know jd vance may still pull out ohio um but you don't I, you know when i look at what's going on on the ground in the gop this sort of the sort of new tech bro nationalist populist sort of uh trumpy but with ideas faction does not look to me to be like a dominant faction of the gop or the wave of the future it may be a persistent and enduring faction of the gop or it may not be i i honestly don't know but i i do know that the people who claim to know that don't know it either um but there's this like uh commingling of interests with the media because the media wants to report these new trends because they sound first of all it sounds like news second of all it sounds scary to liberals and um um and it's a way to sort of cast the gop in a more ominous light now there's a lot of ominous things going on in the gop but um you know my point is sort of like i've told this story before i went to one of those big ass coke donor conferences i've been to a couple but i went to one in i was there as a speaker not as a journalist and um um 
but I went to one, I think it was in 2012, when like literally that day or the day before the New York Times had written its, you know, 12,000th hand-wringing piece about how the Coke networks or the Coke talked, was it a octopus? they like to call it, um, not the news pages, but you know, that was a big left-wing phrase, was taking over the GOP, was running the conservative movement. It was the dominant player in American life. It was the kind of thing that 60 Minutes would do a piece where Leslie Stahl would ask a question she knew the answer to, and then when she got the answer, she would gasp and say, really? Um, about how scary, you know, the Koch brothers are. And... um and I get to this conference and I'm like just hanging out at the plenary session listening and all of these supposedly master of the universe string pulling, um, uh, you know, Coke donors were freaking out about how powerless they were and about how they had no control over the party. And if only the consultants could be, um, uh, gotten rid of or if only we could go over the heads or overrule the consultants these gatekeepers who keep the donors from um um doing you know having their way with the candidates and the campaigns everything would be solved and it was really kind of striking you know to listen to people who the i don't the average net worth in that room was probably somewhere between 50 and 500 million dollars and like these people were talking about how they were locked out and that they were outsiders and this was at a time when if you talk to consultants, which, you know, I do from time to time, uh, they'd all be complaining about, you know, the damn donors, they run everything and it's a huge pain in the ass. And, um, and that's sort of the nature of American politics and it's fine. No one's in charge. No one's running everything. And similarly, no, none of these like startup movements with these grandiose manifestos and um and talk about how they're the the wave of the future or the silent majority or that they are the um the next big thing none of them know that they may they they may feel like they know it they may believe it um but they hype it and um and there are just people who have an incentive to if not believe the hype then repeat the hype um and I think that, so anyway, brings that to mind is primarily just like watching the Blake Masters, um, Peter Thiel, you know, uh, once in future King talk uh, unravel into sort of a cock up of amateurishness um, and finger pointing, you know, and the same thing goes with like Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell, like Mitch McConnell, I know I get a lot of grief, but I think the guy's a grown up and um, I don't like all the moral compromises he's made. I don't like... Um, I don't like the politicianness of Mitch McConnell, but at the same time, I respect the fact that Mitch McConnell is a grown-up politician who tries to do what is obviously what is best for him, but also what is best for his party and particularly his caucus in a mature way that points towards um, political and policy seriousness in a way that a lot of other Republicans don't even either never knew how to do or certainly don't remember how to do. And, um, and so I don't, it's again, it's not like I don't have my criticism of Mitch McConnell, but he, 
um, the compromises he makes are compromises with reality that he cannot change. And he always at least nods towards what he thinks the real truth of the matter is and um, has tells that telegraph to, you know, the observer that um, he wishes things could be better and he is trying to corral and move things in a direction towards, um, you know, institutional integrity. And that's, I guess that's ultimately the thing I like about Mitch McConnell is that he's an institutionalist. He's like the only player, major player on the Republican side of any power and, and influence who just doesn't want to be president and doesn't do things as if they will eventually lead to being president. Um, I don't trust Rick Scott because it just, it seems obvious to me that this is all like part of his seven point plan to become president. Everything Ted Cruz does uh, is at least partially informed by wanting to be president. Um, I don't think Lindsey Graham still wants to be president, but uh, although if he thought there was an opportunity, he'd go for it. But he has sort of a presidential ambition adjacent psychology, which he just always wants to be in the mix. And he always wants something to do on a Wednesday night in front of a television camera, um, which is, um, is very hard to distinguish from the sorts of things you would do if you were running for president. And you can just go down the list. And Mitch McConnell is the only guy who kind of still holds to this old fashioned view that the, the Senate, you know, what's the, it's like, you know, one of those like Longworth or one of those guys quotes, um, one of those great, you know, legislators, legislators from the fifties or sixties who would say, you know, um, I was, I'm going to mangle the quote and a dozen people in the comments will get the real one and make fun of me for it. But it's something like, you know, look, son, the Democrats aren't the enemy. The Democrats are the opposition. The house is the enemy. Um, and I miss that kind of thing. I wish like the Senate Republicans and Democrats had more of an oppositional attitude politically towards the house than they did towards, you know, the R's and the D's, you know, versus, you know, the, the opposite tribes in the Senate. But those days are over for, for a while at least. Anyway, all right, so enough with all that. Uh, and instead, let's talk about another related thing, which is this national conservatism stuff. I want to be really clear. I don't take it very seriously intellectually. Um, I know there are some very smart people who are either involved in it or uh, fellow travelers of it. Um, you know, Chris Dermuth, uh, former president of AI. I like him personally a great deal. I have an enormous amount of respect for how smart he is. I just think he is like completely wrong on this stuff. Um, and I don't know why he's gotten so wrapped up in it. And there are a few people like that that I, I deeply admire um, on a personal or intellectual basis. But as a sort of political, I don't want to say psychological, although there's sort of a sort of um, group think faddishness to all of this that I think some people should know better than get so caught up in it. Um, but I just don't have a lot of respect for like, you know, the, the NatCon ideas and NatCon for those who don't know and don't care, which is a vast majority of the American people, NatCon is short for national conservatism. They just had like, I think it's their third 
conference in Miami. If you follow Twitter, which again, you should uh, do sparingly, um, you would think that this was, you know, the first international um, uh, leading to global revolution or something like that, when in fact it was a perfectly, as far as I can tell, perfectly well-attended conference um, that had some politicians speak at it. I think it's kind of funny, you know, these guys, I mean, these guys really hate, you know, me and 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 David French and I shouldn't say these guys, uh, some of the more prominent people or some of their loudest people uh, hate people like me and, and, and places like AI, places like the Dispatch, people like David, uh, people who still bitterly cling to this notion that American conservatism is actually deeply and immutably bound up with a, um, a cultural and philosophical attachment to classical liberalism and make no apologies for thinking that's a good thing um, that vexes some of these people. And, um, um, but I think it's kind of funny. I mean, they all, they all live on Twitter. Like even when they're not on the device, it's just Twitter is in their head. They think Twitter is the real world. Um, and I finally looked at like the NatCon account and it's got like 5,000 followers, something like that. You know, um, I, you know, uh, I'm not bragging cause I'm actually not particularly proud of this, but you know, I have like 350 something thousand followers. Now, admittedly, half of those people are just there for the dog content, but still, uh, the idea that this is some massive movement whose time has come, um, if you're believing that, and you're a member of the NatCon thing, that's one thing, um, because you have youthful enthusiasm or you have end of career kind of one la one last rodeo enthusiasm uh, for the thing, and some of you might actually kind of just wanna believe your own hype. Um, but if you're not sympathetic to all that, I would not despair too much about it. Um, I spend a lot of time worrying about what's happening to the right because that's the life I have chosen. That's sort of part of my job description and all that. And I think it is important to, to debate these ideas and argue with these ideas. Um, but I just don't see how like this movement becomes a mainstream movement that, you know, redefines and realigns American politics the way these, these people seem to think. And again, I know this is a recurring theme of mine but um, it is always astonishing to me how um, people who um, talk about all these new ideas that they've got, um, so many of them seem totally oblivious to um, what is essentially the history of their own movement, right? I mean, like, uh, for a long time, we were talking about the post-liberal people who believed in... Um, you know, sort of the Catholic line, first lane things, um, the Sorab stuff, uh, the Sorab wing of all of that. Um, and the thing is, is like, you know, that was an argument in the, uh, that happened in and out of the pages of National Review um, amongst, basically within <laughs> William F. Buckley's own family, between him and his brother-in-law, um, Brent Bozell, uh, when Brent Bozell, who was an ultramontane Catholic, um, founded, I think it was called Triumph, you know, magazine, short lived. That was a, 
serious sort of theocratic, you know, uh, Catholic magazine about how to orient society. And it, it was a, you know, uh, it was a shooting star. It, it appeared for a while. People paid attention to it for a hot minute and then it, it disintegrated. And, um, but like, I, you know, I wrote about this, the nationalist movement in the United States, uh, for the dispatch a while back, we'll put it in the show notes. And I just, it, you know, it, it occurred to me, I forgot, I even forgot I wrote it. I wrote it in 2020. Um, I write about it a little bit in liberal fascism and again, a little bit in suicide of the West. Um, um, because I find it interesting stuff, but there was an actual nationalist movement in the, um, um, in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, called the nationalist movement. And it was inspired actually by this book, looking backward, um, which was written by Edward Bellamy, uh, Edward Bell looking backward. It was, um, is credited by a lot of people as basically the foundational, um, example of utopian science fiction. Um, we're so used to dystopian science fiction at this point that utopian science fiction um, outside of basically Star Trek seems kind of weird to people. But the the gist of looking backward was Bellamy wrote it in, I think it was 1890, and um, the, char the main character was kind of a Rip Van Winkle guy who goes into a coma or goes to sleep um, for whatever reason, and he wakes up in the year 2000, um, or as Conan O'Brien used to say in the old days, the year 2000. And, um, and the looking backward refers to him, like looking backward on the century that he missed and being informed about what, um, happened and, 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 and how society reorganized itself and transformed itself. And, um, um, I'm going to read you just a little bit from the piece I wrote. Uh, the plot of Looking Backward seems a bit pedestrian for science fiction. The protagonist, Julian West, is a Rip Van Winkle character who falls into a deep hypnotic sleep at the end of the 19th century and awakens in the, two, in the year 2000. When he wakes, he encounters a good-natured fellow, Dr. Leet, who serves as his guide to the socialist utopia that awaited America. Capitalism has been interred and replaced with a new cooperative system in which all Americans are, are conscripted into industrial armies. For-profit business has been done away with as all forms of production have been nationalized and subsumed into the great trust. When the nation becomes the sole employer, explains Dr. Leap, all the citizens by virtue of their citizenship become employees to be distributed according to the needs of industry. At 21, every student joins an industrial army for three years of training as a common laborer. When that's over, if his grades and job performance are adequate, he chooses a profession or trade. Whichever path he picks, the pay will be the same. Women are treated similarly, but their industrial army focuses on vocations best suited for the fairer sex. When women marry, they keep working, but when they get pregnant, they have generous maternity leave to raise the next generation of laborers. Everybody retires from active service at 45 when the good life really begins. So I go on to write, I'll just give you a little bit more. Bill, Bellamy had a gift for predicting technological developments. He foresaw airplanes, submarines, radios, and television. But his most interesting prediction was the introduction of credit cards, his term, which he thought would eliminate all of the evils associated with money. 
quote, a credit corresponding to his share of the national product of the nation is given to every citizen um, on the public books at the beginning of each year. And a credit card issued him with which he procures at the public storehouses found in every community, whatever he desires, whenever he desires it. Uh, Dr. Leet explains to Julian West, the main character, this arrangement you will see totally obviates the necessity for business transactions of any sort between individuals and consumers. Anyway, you get a sense. It's basically a socialist utopia kind of thing. And um, um, the reason I bring it up is because uh, looking backwards was basically what launched the nationalist movement in the United States. Um, more from the piece a little further down. Looking backward inspired a mass nationalist movement dedicated to, quote, the nationalization of industry and the promotion of the brotherhood of humanity, unquote. The first nationalist club appeared in Boston in the summer of 1888, founded by a labor reporter for the Boston Globe. The following year, it started publishing The Nationalist, a monthly paper. It wasn't long before clubs started sprouting. Uh, it wasn't long before clubs sprouted up across the country. Two years after the publication, there were clubs in 27 states in the District of Columbia. In Chicago, the Collectivist League, never a great name, founded in April 1888, changed its name to the Nationalist Club of Illinois 10 months later. Soon there were hundreds of clubs. One estimate held that there were some 4,000 Bellamy societies in the United States and hundreds more in Holland, Denmark, and Sweden. The Nationalist was soon replaced with a weekly newspaper, New Nation, edited by Bellamy himself and, quote, pledged to all of the nationalistic principles that will be realized in the new nation, unquote. Its aim, this is me again, its aim was to translate the passion of the new nationalist moment, uh, I'm sorry, its aim was to translate the passion of the new nationalist movement into a full political program. A sister publication, Nationalization News, appeared in the UK. Bellamite nationalists launched slates of candidates in such places as California and Rhode Island. As the nationalists became a full-blown full grassroots movement, Bellamy built his coalition by finding common cause with the Farmers Alliance and other agrarian and labor movements around the country. Uh, Bellamy endorsed the populist ticket in Massachusetts and often spoke at populist events around the nation. Nationalist and Bellamyite soon became terms of praise or approbation depending on one's politics. When the Texas legislature passed a bill authorizing the state to pay for school textbooks, it was greeted by the nationalists as a big win for the cause. John Hope Franklin recounts how the New York Sun denounced the governor-elect of Texas as a, quote, blatant Bellamyite, a nationalist, and a corporation hater. Bellamy replied in the New Nation, to be denounced in such terms by the Sun, which is the most consistent, thick, and thin champion of the plutocratic movement to be found in this country, is the best possible certificate of character for a reformer. Um, anyway, the national movement became this massive thing around the country, clubs everywhere, hugely influential in the populist party, um, kind of became part of the populist party. You can read the piece. Um, and part of the reason why I just bring this up is I guarantee you most listeners haven't heard of the Bellamyite nationalist movement and nationalism clubs. Um, but I also get the sense, at least from the stuff I've read that 
this new nationalist NatCon movement is all about nationalism this and nationalism that doesn't know anything about this either. And, um, and that's fine. I'm not saying it's the most important chapter in um, American history. It's a pretty friggin' influential chapter as a matter of intellectual and political history in American history. Um, but if I were going to start a new political movement whose who you claim is this sort of revolutionary new idea whose time has come, I'd spend a little time like Google searching nationalism in America. Um, moreover, I think, you know, as you can kind of tell from the ideas that were associated with nationalism, this is one of these reasons which why, you know, and I used to get, it's, it, this is one of these, like why I feel like I'm taking crazy pills kinds of things. This is why I feel like I'm part of a remnant. Um, you know, I've been railing against populism and railing against how railing about how nationalism and socialism are kindred phenomenon for years. It is at the heart of my argument in liberal fascism. And, um, um, and conservative audiences of all stripes, libertarian audiences of all stripes agreed with me. They thought it was interesting and important. And, you know, I would make these arguments at Coke conferences. I would make these arguments, um, at libertarian conferences. I would make these arguments at sort of hardcore right wing audiences. And everyone was sort of on the same page. I'd point out how, if you read a speech by Fidel Castro and you replace socialist with nationalist and socialize with nationalize, the meanings of the sentences never change. When the fight's over Obamacare, I would say, look, nationalized healthcare is socialized medicine. You know, the verb to nationalize is a synonym, go to a thesaurus. To nationalize something is to socialize something. And, and everyone's just, you know, sort of, agree with me. And now all of a sudden, like conservatism is about nationalism and, um, and people make it sound like I have this weird sort of novel idea that instead of fact, not. And if you look at the history of nationalism in America, very much like the history of populism in America, it's left wing and it's left wing in the same way. Like, you know, this is the thing that bothered so many people about my book, Liberal Fascism, is that I defined my terms. In other words, you're free to disagree with my analysis in, in, in Liberal Fascism, and lots of smart people do, and that's fine. But I'm not going to take your criticism seriously if you bring your terms and your definitions into the debate when... I very explicitly use my terms and my definitions and explain what they are. And part of my argument was like, if you, if you just come up with an abstract definition of what a fascist society, forget Nazi for a second, right? Because Nazi is a different thing. And there's actually a serious scholarly debate about how fascist the Nazis were, or whether you can really say Italian fascists, never mind Spanish fascists and German fascists all had a, the same ideology. It's complicated. And because of the Holocaust, for obvious reasons, you can't really talk about Nazism without your head going there. So just talk about Italian fascism, which is where the word comes from. Uh, it's where the movement was created. Uh, you know, it's 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 Mussolini who creates fascism. And if you just had a sort of a checklist of what a fascist society looks like, um, and I described it to you in the abstract, you know, just sort of like, um, and I, I don't necessarily mean fascism as it was actually realized in Italy because... There was a lot of hype to Mussolini. He was basically 
full of fecal matter. Um, but if you read like the various fascist manifestos and descriptions about how a fascist society should look like, and you just keep the word fascist out of it, it sounds very much like a socialist country. You know, you know, uh, socialized medicine and and guaranteed jobs, guaranteed homes, guaranteed income, all these kinds of things. Yeah, there's a lot of militarism to it. Um, and that's fine. And that you can say that's right wing. But as, as a matter of sort of economic and social organization, it's not classically liberal. It's not libertarian. It's not free market. It's not for, you know, like the idea that I have to, and I, I, I seriously used to spend significant amount of, a significant amount of time having to explain to college students that, um, you know, that the Nazis were not champions of limited government. Um, you know, there's this, there was this tendency in the old days where people of a libertarian bent were called fascists and Nazis as if that made sense. You know, as I write in the book, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I was inspired in part by the, and horrified in part by the reaction to the bell curve, where um, you can have serious disagreements with Charles Murray. He's a dear friend of mine. Um, and serious people have serious disagreements with him. But like the idea, I remember watching on a local DC news station, they, 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 they promote an upcoming segment about a controversial new book. And in the promo, it was just all B-roll of Nuremberg rallies and, 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 and like, and concentration camps. And again, you can disagree with Charles and the bell curve, although there are very few like cogent, um, critiques of the bell curve. And there are a lot of, uh, not cogent critiques of the bell curve. Um, but I know Charles, I knew Charles at the time. I mean, I didn't know, I wasn't friends with him back in those days. I was more sort of like, uh, you know, I was a young policy gnome at, at AI in those days. But Charles is a soak to the bone libertarian who really has profound skepticism about whether or not the government is qualified to collect your garbage. And the idea that he would want to create a police state and throw people in camps was just people's imagination running wild, um, unsupported by, you know, the facts. Anyway, the reason I get into all this is that all of a sudden, what is being called conservatism is really, if you define your terms about state intervention, uh, economic planning, if you say that things like economic planning, state intervention, huge subsidies for um, the for the public, uh, positive um, positive liberty arguments about economics and rights, right? If you if you if you just think about what a socialist or uh, a generous welfare state society looks like, I think that's left wing. And, um, and I think a right wing society in the context of Anglo-American liberalism, which has two pillars, which is sort of social and cultural conservatism and uh, limited government uh, liberalism, right? Uh, one pillar is free markets and free minds, and the other pillar is traditional values and, and all of that. And if you define the right in the Amer Anglo-American context in those terms, then it doesn't matter what your rhetoric is, and it doesn't matter what your intentions are. If you're in favor of industrial policy and economic planning um, and um, a robust welfare state, I think that makes you left-wing. Um, where on the left is a perfectly legitimate argument to talk about. And, um, if you're, and it can get a little complicated with the terminology because if you're using a lot of 
right wing rhetoric about you know immigrants and traditional values and um um and culture war stuff while proposing left wing economic stuff you know i mean like there's a reason why tucker carlson thinks elizabeth um warren's economic program uh is great right i mean he basically endorsed it a few years ago um it can get murky but as a matter of a policy thing, I see that stuff as left wing and we don't even have to call it left wing anymore. I just, I think it's wrong. And this, you know, this gets to this point I keep hammering about, you know, the Hayekian critique of economic planning um, and centralized planning wasn't inherently a, creek, a critique of the left. It was a critique of centralized planning and economic planning which was championed in his time by the left. I have no doubt that if Hayek were alive today and he were listening to Blake Masters and some of these people, um, he would be talking about the, the dangers and stupidity of economic planning from the right. And, um, um, you know, like, so like this, this, this guy, Josh Hammer, who, um, has fashioned himself, you know, uh, if not a Lenin, then, you know, maybe a Bukharin of this new movement, um, wrote basically this press release piece for the NatCon movement and this foundation is associated with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Um, and he does a little primer, we can put in the show notes, about what NatCons believe. And basically it reads, not entirely, you know, but certainly on foreign policy, it it reads like McGovernite politics with a right wing coat of paint on it. You know, come home America. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, it argues as, as hammer has for a long time, I might even credit that he believes what he's saying. Um, that, uh, um, classical liberalism, um, is just merely, I mean, he, 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 I'll just say, I'll, I don't want to get too pejorative that, you know, sort of classical procedural liberalism, right? Due process, all of these things, um, are bad. Um, um, let's see, I'll, I'll use his words. So I'm not, um, accused of misquoting him. Um, uh, he says, you know, so he runs this stuff about big banking and big tech. And then he says, perhaps most fundamentally, illusory values neutrality must be rejected as the lie that it is. It is impossible for any political regime or any political or constitutional actor to be truly unequivocally neutral. This is particularly true in our partisan age, but it is generally true as well. Every legislative decision on what to tax and what to subsidize entails the making of value judgments, no less so than does the act of judging. Constitutional interpretation should, within the bounds of prudence, reflect that inescapable reality about mankind's moralistic nature. And the American public square should overtly reflect God and the teachings of the Bible and scripture, both in the forms of morally imbued statesmanship and rich public symbolism. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in that that I'm not going to get into. Um, and there's a um, 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 there's some straw manning there. 
Um, but he also has a point, you know, it's not an original point is a point people making for a very long time is, you know, this is a point that like in the context of media bias, Starwall and I were talking about, which is that objectivity is impossible. Right. And, and similarly, what he calls neutrality here is possible, is impossible. The, I mean, among the many problems with this really, I think, kind of silly in some ways immoral argument um, is that that's why, you know, so like, yes, all, all people have their biases, all people have um, their um, um, preferences and sometimes their subconscious. And um, that is an absolutely true fact, right? And that is confirmed time and time again by, um, psychologists and behavioral economics and all that kind of stuff. No argument here. Um, it is not a bold claim, but that's why we have liberal institutions. That's why you set up rules. So not everything is determined by, um, uh, flawed human beings. Instead, you set up systems, you set up checklists of principles and rules that um people have to abide by and yeah there's a little there's 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 wiggle room within the context of rules for people to put their thumbs on this or that and that's just going to be part of life and that's going to be part of life with whatever system we have but the nice thing about sort of the constitutional order and classical liberalism and checks and balances and what he calls for I, I think, uh, tendentious re reasons, values, neutrality. Um, the nice thing about these systems is they keep that stuff in check, right? In, in, in a land where the rule of law is important, where adherence to constitutional principles is important, there's only so far you can stray or only so far you can go imposing your own um, preferences if the rules say you can't do that. And the, the, one of the things that just sort of like, I mean, like, that's why we have adversarial courts of law, right? Is because we understand that, you know, the defense is going to be biased in favor of the defendant and the prosecution is going to be biased in favor of conviction. And um, that's why judges wear those black robes to convey a sense of neutrality, to remind the remind people in the courtroom, but also to remind themselves. They're up on a, on a bench high above the fray of the combat, looking down upon it, wearing a black robe to, to, to suggest that they don't have any partisan affiliations of one kind or another. And when I say partisan, I mean in the broadest sense, like no religious, no cultural, like it's 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 trying to convey it. and obviously that doesn't work perfectly we have very liberal judges and we have very conservative judges and we have judges everywhere along the line in between um but that's sort of the point is that you create systems to prevent people from running wild with their preferences that's why you have juries, right? Jur the whole judicial system is a series of checks and balances, just not in the legislative context, but in um, the rule of law context. And, you know, anybody who's been to or knows anybody or has worked in a dangerous um, profession, you know, uh, police, 
uh, construction sites, labs, um, you know, you go down the list, there's a reason why you have a bunch of rules about how you behave, about what you do and don't do and the order in which you do it. It's to, it's as a hedge against the mistakes that inevitably come if you just let everybody act on their own raw intellect. Like the civilization is essentially, it's the cloud, right? It's like where we keep the operating system for how we live and what the rules for how we live are. And, um, and some of the rules in the supposedly values neutral system, and I know I go on about this, but like, you know, again, in the criminal justice context, the ability to confront your accuser, um, the rules of habeas corpus, uh, Miranda rights, um, the right to have a jury trial, um, the right to legal, you know, representation, the Fourth Amendment right against unlawful search and seizure. You can go down a long list. These are values neutral in the sense that they apply to everybody, but they are not value neutral in, in their content. It is a moral good, hard learned that people should have the right to confront their accuser, that people have a right to a trial, that people have the right not to incriminate themselves, um, that the people have the right to counsel, that people have a right to a jury of their peers. These are things that are not, the rules are, are values neutral in applicability because everybody has the right to them because everybody has equal dignity before God and before the court or before the law. Um, but they're actually profoundly moral laws. Free speech is a moral law, um, hard learned, right? And um, there's this bait and switch thing that goes on that says, oh, procedural liberalism is just sort of like these cool, and it's like, you know, you can't leave your cake out in the break room and the person who finished the coffee has to um, start a new pot. Well, Actually, those are bad examples because those are moral rules, right? Those are like rules about personal responsibility and how to live with other people. All the rules that we have, classical liberal rules are not without moral content. And um, what all of this crap is really about is about power, is that we want to have, that, that the, the reason why we need classically liberal rules is to prevent people like um, Peter Thiel and Blake Masters and Josh Hammer from making up the rules any which way they want. Um, ways where they get to say, here's how we're going to tilt the scales in favor of the people we like. Here are the winners we're going to pick and the losers we're going to pick, whether it's in the economy or in the culture wars or anything else. Liberal Classical liberal rules are the things that keep different factions at bay and don't let them actually take the reins of power and then impose their will on everybody else. And that is a profoundly moral set of arrangements. And the thing that really kind of drives me batty about a lot of this stuff is that a lot of the, this Edmund Burke foundation, which was apparently founded, I just looked it up a minute ago, um, was founded in 2019. Um, I could have sworn there was another batty Edmund Burke foundation, you know, 10 years ago, but I guess it's a different thing. Um, Edmund Burke 
does not agree with the Natcons on a lot of things. I'm sure there are things, I'm sure there are quotes that the Natcons and the Burke Foundation can um, uh, find and invoke, although it's funny, their website, which is a really bad website, um, you know, you would at least think there'd be some fig leaf quotes from Edmund Burke, and I didn't, couldn't find any. Um, it's just basically like a homepage and an about page. But, you know, Edmund Burke, profoundly disagreed with the arguably the most important and foundational act nationalist movement of the last 300 years, which was the French revolution. He wrote a whole book about how he disagreed with what was going on with the French revolution and the French revolution. Yes, it was a left-wing thing. It was also a nationalist thing. It was in many ways, the er nationalist movement, um, in the West. And, um, and Burke went hammer at tongs at the at the Jacobins for erasing all sorts of local institutions, regional institutions, institutions, but also liberal institutions, and the the sort of fevered, unchecked rage that you get with nationalist movements where they think they are anointed by God to be the authentic voice of the Volksgemeinschaft or the people or whatever they want to call it, um, that kind of political fervor um, and arrogance was sort of at the heart of what Edmund Burke was fighting against. And so it's just, it's kind of gross. It's kind of like some socialist movement um, being championed and spearheaded by the Milton Friedman Foundation. Um, it just kind of creeps me out. Anyway, I've gone on long enough. Um, I need to get more caffeinated. I promise we're going to get back to a more normal schedule. I, I cannot tell you how racked with guilt I feel about missing two G files. I haven't missed two G files in a week, you know, in a row since we launched the dispatch. Um, and maybe for years and, um, although not, maybe not necessarily my honeymoon. Um, anyway, um, Stay tuned, pay attention to the next week. Some exciting stuff is coming down the pike. We're really looking forward for looking forward to Allah Pundit coming back on. I've reached out to him to say, hey, look, you can take your time. He's a little trepidatious about doing podcasts because he's been anonymous for so long. Um, and I told him, take your time. Love to have you on the remnant. We can be very generous with the sort of if you want a do-over, we can do a do-over. Um, I really doubt he's gonna need it. He's so freaking smart. Um but I just told him the one thing you have to promise me is that um, the first podcast you do at um, the dispatch isn't advisory opinions because that would just be wrong and um, he should come on the remnant first. And uh, oh, uh, the last bit of news, um, which I didn't tell anybody I would have written about in the G file yesterday if I'd written a G file is Pippa. We've been sort of on um, pins and needles all week. Um, our Goofy Springer Spaniel, Pippa. Um, they found a tumor. Um, it's particularly common, this kind of tumor with Spaniels, apparently. It didn't look good. They had to biopsy it. Our vet didn't have an in-house oncologist. And you would think with the money I've spent at that vet, they would have a team of in-house oncologists and baristas full-time to pay. Uh, to make coffee for their in-house oncologists. Anyway, they sent it out. We got the results two days ago. It's benign. 
and it was just a massive, massive relief. Um, she's still gonna have to have surgery to have it removed, but um, we were really, really worried that we were gonna lose a little girl. So that's a sign for gratitude and joy. And, um, and so are all of you. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Adam for sitting here in this very physically awkward situation, listening to me ramble. And um, I'll see you next time. <laughs>